And Jesus, we are so grateful to be in your presence this morning. It's so awesome to share in your goodness, the goodness of your presence, your salvation, fellowship in your family, worship, and hearing from you in your word. And we just pray that uh, everything comes together today to let us know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody. Tired? Hey, everybody. All right, there you go. Good job. All right, you know, hey, next week you get a little break. It's time change next week, and uh, you'll get an hour extra sleep, unless, of course, you forget to set your clock, which nobody should do in 2017, because that message is going to go out about 100 times this week, uh, which is awesome. I need it. So I'm Jim, uh, Jim Gain, and I'm an executive pastor here, groups pastor, do a few different things with uh, partnering with Pastor Bruce and the rest of our awesome staff, and I'm grateful to uh, be able to share with you when uh, he's out of town. He is in Mexico celebrating a milestone anniversary of his parents, who I think, I'm really sorry, I don't know the detail because I forgot to ask, but I'm pretty sure it's their 40th year on the field. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty awesome. So he thought it appropriate to to accept the invitation to go be with them, and I agree, and I'm happy to help out this morning. And I grabbed a bottle of water yesterday. My wife uh, brought a new case of water home, and I went in the car and I started twisting it, and it wouldn't, and it felt funny, and I thought it was a defective cap. It's not. How many of you have seen the new caps on crystal, crystal geyser water? Anybody? Look at me. I'm a maven. Here you go. This look what happens. But then it explodes on you like that. And, but yeah, so. Mm. So there you go. New cap. That actually matters later in the message, but. <laughs> I, uh, I have to admit, I like TV more than I should, you know, like, I like watching football, you know, football game, last night there was a game, I was like four hours, uh, well, you're moaning, did you watch the Dodgers? <laughs> <laughs> Baseball is long too, but so like, if you like sports or a movie or whatever, I, you know, I just like to come home at the end of the day, eat some dinner and mellow out watching some TV. And I remember in high school, you know, we didn't have cable, and it was channel two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen. And if you dared, you might go on to UHF and uh, watch two or three of those channels. But you basically, you had eight or nine channels, and I, you know, I was stoked. I'd come home uh, in college. I would watch six episodes between the morning, afternoon, and night. I would watch six episodes of Get Smart. Would you believe five episodes? <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I was perfectly happy uh, with what was going on on the seven channels. And then, you know, of course, Channel 5 would do certain themed weeks. They had War Week, my favorite week, especially in junior high, was like Monster Week. And every, every year, they did it two or three times a year, Monster Week. And every Monday was War of the Gargantuans. Remember that? The guys wandering around in furry pajamas over a model city, beating each other up. That was awesome. Uh, But here we are today. I'm subscribing to Basic Cable plus the variety tier. 
I don't have any pay channels, so I don't have everything I can have, but I got that variety tier so we can watch NASCAR and Pac-12 sports and classic movies and stuff. And so with the variety tier, we have over 200 channels in the gain, gain household. And uh, man, that's a lot. That's over 20 times what we had in 1977. And uh, it's... It's crazy to imagine that there's that many channels, and yet somehow or another, at least two or three times a week, I'm calling out to my wife, there's absolutely nothing on TV. <laughs> and so here we are, you know, we're in this American society, we're saturated with, uh, with options. There's just so many options in just about every category of life. I like food. I like a few different varieties of food. I think we all do. I like Mexican food. Anybody like Mexican food? In Orange County, there are 3,300 Mexican restaurants. There's 47 colleges. There's over 120 tech companies. There's 9,800 churches listed on Google in Orange County. Which, by the way, according to Rick Warren, if everybody in Orange County attended church, there would only be enough churches to hold 5% of the county. Recently, I was shopping for an, uh, a computer bag on Amazon. And man, if you want to sort through options, go to Amazon. And so a friend of mine needed a computer bag. Uh, it's Pastor Bruce, actually. He... Uh, has one that's probably 20 years old, and so it was boss's day the other day, and it just seemed like a good, good time to get him a new computer bag. But I didn't do this till the uh, uh, day before yesterday. I thought it would be fun to look up how many hits would come up on Amazon for computer bag. And you want to talk about options, 427,000 67 hits for computer bag. Now, some of those are probably repeats and some of those are probably accessories, but 400, almost half a million hits on Amazon. And so we're going to look at a story today from uh, Acts 17, and we're going to see a culture that is very much like ours, a culture just loaded with options. So many options and what that meant. So what I want to do is read through the whole passage, kind of make some comments about what was going on historically, and then we'll go into the teaching portion of what we have here. So here's Paul. He is, uh, I Google mapped his travel that if you were to go from Jerusalem to Athens, and he didn't go straight shot, he had some other stops on his way, but if you were to go by car on that trip, it would take you 33 hours. So he was a long way from home, from a monotheistic comfort, from just celebrating and knowing and worshiping one God where he was from. Not that there wasn't paganism there, but that was the more dominant uh, approach to living to this culture, and it's an astounding, it's not just distance miles, it's distance uh, personally, emotionally, mentally. If you've ever traveled overseas, maybe you've felt that uh, in, a, in a foreign country. He felt it in a deep way. He even starts out by saying so, and we're starting in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
These idols are pagan idols, so the, the city's full of them. Researchers and historians estimate that there were 30,000 idols in Athens. You might have heard the quote before that it was easier to find an idol than a man in Athens. A lot of options. He saw this and it burdened him, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, which is Greek for Facebook, It is, because what it was was a public forum where everybody from the Athens region would come and philosophy, do court hearings, even trials, and they would hear things, and this is what they're doing with Paul. And really, as you will notice, in places or others, maybe they gave the liked or dislike. And that's what's going on here. This is Greek's version of social media. And so they brought him there. Another name for that is Mars Hill. And they, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Like there's 427,000 hits on Amazon or Crystal Geyser has a cool new water bottle. You know, I could have posted that, right? <laughs> so Paul, standing in the midst of the Greek Facebook, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. They had 30,000 gods. They were very tuned in to the supernatural. They were very comfortable with it. It was part of their identity as individuals. It was part of their identity as a culture, and we'll see more about that. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he indeed needed anything since he himself gives, all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
We could stop there and start thinking about what kind of world Paul was stepping into. And like I've said, it was full of options, and there are three things in particular to pull out that he points out of what kind of really made this Greek culture and also contributed to them being somewhat conceited about it. The first thing is their religion. We saw that it's full of idols. It's 30,000 idols. And, you know, here's what I ha- imagine this, how this came together. I mean, how do you wind up with 30,000 idols in a town? You don't wake up one day and say, we, man, we need 30,000 idols. <clears throat> you have five or six, and it doesn't seem good enough, so you add 10 or 20 more. And that doesn't seem good enough, and so on, and so on, and so on. Then you get a little exhausted by it. You get to 30,000, and you go, oh, well, let's just make one to the unknown God and cover all our bases. And that's what they did. And But by doing so, they felt like they were probably really great people really open-minded and culturally tolerant. They were religiously flexible. When it came to the gods and religion, it's all good. And in having this kind of mentality, they must have had a certain kind of conceit that they were superior somehow in thinking and in belief than the other nations around them. Certainly you see that come out in how they treated Paul. So they didn't just have religion going for them, though. They had education. They had academics. Look at verse uh, 18. Some of the Epicureans. Now, Epicurean was a school of philosophy that believed that pleasure was the height of mankind, that you just get everything you can out of life and then die, and you'll die peacefully. One of their famous quotes is, eat, drink, and uh, be merry for tomorrow we die. And they just were into experiences and for personal pleasure. And I think sometimes we think about that and we think to the extreme edges. They weren't extreme. In fact, they frowned on extreme, uh, like moral decadence and stuff like that. But they were very into uh, personal pleasure. And not much unlike our culture, I think it was hard for them to define and keep track of because there wasn't a fixed point of reference for morality in their world, and maybe sometimes it did get out of hand. Then you had the Stoics. The Stoics thought that knowledge, academic knowledge, and just an individual person and everybody just knowing as much as they can and figuring life out and speaking into it. And I'm just amazed at how much Greek culture can look like ours. They had this educational, academic, almost arrogance. You know, we get our word trivia from from a place in Greece where three roads came together, uh, the legend tells us that these three roads came together and it's where people gathered to just talk about education all the time, to talk about philosophy. I'm reminded by a couple people in my life that Western civilization basically exists and mirrors Platonic philosophy. Plato and Aristotle really, they form the West. Their philosophy formed the West. Uh, My son's philosophy teacher says, you can know everything you need to know about the West by studying Plato and Shakespeare. 
I don't know how true that is, but just the fact that those things go out there. And this is Greece. So they had religion and they had education, but they had another point of reference for this cultural conceit because not only did they have 30,000 gods and uh, philosophy just on a tear and making a difference not only in their world but around the world, they had technology. They had so much technology. Now, when we think of technology, we immediately go to electronics, right? You're thinking of your phone, your computer, your tablet, your laptop. You're thinking about those kind of things. Technology actually is a Greek word, like every word is Greek, if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding. (laughs) Yeah, and, and yeah, and everything can be fixed with Windex, exactly. So, you know, on a side note that you mentioned that, you know what's hilarious? My, uh, my oldest son roomed with a Greek, a hardcore Greek kid. He had a bottle of Windex under his car seat. <laughs> and he used it on everything. So I guess that's real. Um. <laughs> So technology, here's what it means. It, comes, uh, it means science of craft. It comes from the Greek word techni, art, skill, or cunning of hand, and logia. It's the collection of techniques, skills, methods, and processes used in the production of goods or services or in the accomplishment of objectives such as scientific investigation. In Athens, there were 17 temples. Around Athens, there were 30. Have you seen these pictures? Have you been to these sites? They were marvelous. They were technologically advanced on a level that was blowing the world away and blows us away to this day. You look at those pictures of the ruins and you, it's astounding. They had technological advancement. They were technologically advancing in other ways too, but Athens was a radical center for technological advancement. And then, like I said already, they were addicted to that which is new, like a new water bottle or the new iPhone, right? People are going to wait in line for weeks for the new iPhone. They want to be first, you know? Man, I wanted to be first to show you that water bottle. I'm so validated. (laughs) When I was watching Get Smart in the late 70s, early 80s, it was on a 25-inch tube TV. Some of you people in here have 70-inch LED 1080p awesome TVs. How did we ever make it, right? And what Paul recognized about Greece is what we need to recognize about where we're at in our culture. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is something we all battle, and that is... You know, because of our advancement, because of all the options out there, it can, it can distract us away from what really matters. And worse, it can create within us a conceit that we have it all together. That we don't need stability, that we don't need something outside of ourselves. See, conceit is rooted within you. It's you thinking I can make it on my own because of what I've achieved. It's you thinking you can make it on your own because you're strong enough. I got this. I can handle it. Paul came into Athens with something different than conceit. He came in with confidence. Confidence isn't within you. It is something that you trust outside of yourself. And you're exercising confidence right now in your chair. 
You're sitting in it and you're trusting it, trusting it to support your 95 pounds, your 155 pounds, your 205 pounds. You're trusting it. And you trusted it fully. I didn't see anybody, and I don't very often see anybody go at church. Oh, okay. No, you sit in it. And you put total and complete trust in it. And it's something that's outside of you. And in a very similar way, Paul comes in to Greece in a place that's far from home, that has 30,000 pagan gods that are totally out of the ordinary compared to what he knows. And he comes in with a certain confidence and he gives what I think in this situation are his three best reasons to sort out all those options and settle on the one true God. And he gives us three reasons and the first one is in verse 24. He starts out in 22 and he just greeting them, and then he says, hey, I passed along. I noticed you've got this idol to an unknown God, and what a marvelous thing that he found that, how God used that, and then how Paul's using the Greeks' own world as a platform into talking to them. What a, what a masterful way to go about talking with somebody and gaining that platform. And in verse 24, he says, hey, I know, I'm gonna tell you who this God is, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And here's what Paul knew from the beginning. God is great because he's creator. He's the all-powerful God, he's the all-knowing God, and we can see that he is the God through creation. God leverages creation in our lives to show us that he is actually God. On my way to church last night, I heard a song, it was a new song on the Christian radio station, I'd never heard it before, but I like these questions that it asked at the beginning, and the song goes on to answer them. How do the stars rest in the sky? Does, don't you just marvel that here's planet Earth, we're sitting on this thing, and it's just floating in the sky, I don't know how, I don't see strings, I don't know how. How's the sun, and the other question, they said, like, how, what gives the stars light? Well, what's fueling our sun? Where does that come from? It comes from God. And he's so great. And Paul comes into Greece. He comes into this world full of pagan gods with people devoting their lives for all different kinds of reasons in all different kinds of ways to false gods. And he says, hey, I know the one God. He's creator. But he's not just creator. He's confirming who he is and what he talks about and what he wants you to do through the resurrection. They brought him to Mars Hill because he was talking about the resurrection. He talks about it again in 31. Toward the end, he says, whom he appointed, and of all this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you know that in Christianity, everything rises and falls on the resurrection? If there's no resurrection, it's all pointless. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith is in vain. And with the power of the resurrection resting on his life and being a firm foundation in his heart and mind, Paul goes into Greece and says, God is great. He's creator. And he confirms his greatness and he confirms his godhood through the resurrection. And what he's saying, the resurrection says and proves that the Bible is true, that God is God, that Jesus is Savior, that heaven and hell are real. And we're all gonna spend eternity in one place or the other. God is not only great, he's a good God. He's our provider and sustainer. Verse 25 says, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. A friend of mine asked me one time uh, last year, you know, how does your heart beat every day? You wake up, your heart's beating. What made it beat from the beginning and what makes it beat every day? God. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods. Those are seasons. The seasons work. I don't necessarily like fall and I don't love winter. If I could, there'd only be two seasons, spring and summer. But you know what? Things wouldn't work, right? What about the ocean? We live close to the ocean. Some of us live really close. Some of us live fairly close. But there's people in, the, in America that will never see the Pacific Ocean in their lifetime. So we live very close to the ocean. You have to have thought many times, how in the world is that thing not coming up here? <laughs> right? Well, I'll tell you how. God. God. He's sustaining the world. He gives us our power to have a heartbeat. He gives us air to breathe. He gives us seasons. He gives us food. I've I, I researched how much chicken we eat in America. Do you know that every American eats 92 pounds of chicken a year? Let me ask you something. Where'd all the chicken come from? God provides and sustains life on earth for mankind because he's a good God. And compare that to how the Greeks were thinking about their gods. Everybody's studied Greek mythology to a certain extent in school. You know, they're hostile, they're vengeful, they're angry with one another, they're petty. We serve a good God. We serve a great God, and we serve a God who shares his glory, the glory of God. He's reaching out. He's knowable. Creation is one fundamental way God has shown himself to us. We see God and the power of who he is in the sky, the ocean, the rivers, the seas, the lakes, the rock formations, the blue sky, the sun, the stars, the planet, they show us God. And he's knowable. He wants to be known. Think about that. He's God. We're pitiful little humans, and he wants to be known by us. Look at verse 27 to 29. 
Listen to what Paul says here. He says that they should seek God. God is, cre- God is great and he's put goodness in our life. Why? So that we would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God's working in and around our lives, in and around the world's lives so that they might find him. And then he's not far from each of us. We wonder if he's not far, but the Bible says he's not far from us. You know what? The Greeks even said God was not far from us in these next two lines. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And what Romans 1.19 says that what can be known about God, God has put in our heart. He's made us kind of have like a, a God awareness. And I really think that every single human soul knows there's a God. But the people who want to not acknowledge that are real busy writing books, making YouTube videos, protesting, screaming, shouting to try and suppress that knowledge. And in spite of that, you think about how awesome God is, how loving, how merciful, how totally counter to what the Greek gods were and the pagan gods. He's working so that somehow or another we might find our way to God. He's putting in that effort because he's a God who cares about eternity. See, God is eternal, and that's part of his glory, and he cares about eternity. Verse 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God cares so much about eternity because he's an eternal being. He's gonna go on for eternity and he wants us with him there. And so he shines his glory through creation, through the church, through people who know you, through people we know, where God is shared. When I look at how I came to faith at 16 years old and I look back to when I was five and I was thinking, man, there's a God and I believe there's a God. And then I was 10 and I was sitting on the beach and I'm looking at the ocean and I'm seeing big waves crash on the shore and I'm thinking, God is a powerful God. And I believed in that God. And I had friends that came into my life who shared Jesus with me. Fred Williams invited me to this church in April of 1980 and I came to church and I made friends here who spoke into my life as well and I had a a youth pastor who spoke into my life. I had people praying for me. All of that is God's program, God's system, God's strategy to show himself to people so that they might be with him in eternity. God's greatness and his goodness and his glory is just so different from the fear of rejection and retribution that those Greeks must have been living under. Wondering when their gods would approve or disapprove of them. 
wondering when or if the gods would bless them. But we have the promises of God that he's great, that he's good, that he's glorious, and he wants to be with us, not just now, but in eternity. And so those of us who know Jesus Christ today can have a really similar confidence in God that Paul had. We look at the life of Paul, many people call him to be the greatest Christian that ever walked the planet. Maybe that's true. But one of the reasons why we think that way is because we recognize in him a man who lived right before God. That he lived an obedient, loving lifestyle. Well, how in the world was he able to do that? Because he was so great. In Philippians 3, he said, no, the things I've achieved to know about the Bible, to know about what it means to follow God. And he had many, many, many lessons. He said, I consider those things rubbish. What was important to Paul was knowing and obeying a God who he loved, not who he feared. And then he went beyond that with this confidence because he owned the fact that God was great and good and glorious. He went beyond that to share his faith and pour Jesus into the lives of others, even strangers in a different country. His God was alive and living and active and true. He could sort through all the options and see that there was one God to serve. And we look at him, and maybe you're a little bit intimidated by trying to pour out faith and truth and love the way Paul did. But I want you to know, God does not expect you to be Paul. To go on three missionary journeys, to preach in Greece or any other public forum. He does not expect that from you. That was Paul's context. What God expects from you is for you to pour into your context. And you can do it with confidence if God is yours. Your context starts in your home. I have heard over the years too many times parents be intimidated by the idea of actually purposefully discipling their children. You gotta get over that. Parents, discipleship begins in the home. And God put you there. He put Paul in Athens. He put you in your home. Your neighborhood, your workplace, the school, wherever your context is, you can go into it with confidence, not based on your ability, but based on God's. And then for those of you who might not know Jesus, You're at a crossroads, just like the Greeks were in Athens. You're being asked to sort through the options. Paul used a a word there when he said that it's time now for everyone to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to sort through the options and find God as being the one true source of life and eternity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. There aren't 19,000 or 30,000 or 100,000 options. It's not all good. There's one way. There's one way. And some people kind of criticize that. I kind of love the simplicity of one way. 
I can sort through the options and find the one true path. And he says that whoever calls on me will be saved. And Paul must have given a similar message, similar opportunity for the Greeks to respond. And today you have one of three responses in your heart, soul, and mind to these truths. You may hear what is said this morning, what comes out from God, a message from God out of his word, and you might reject it. They mocked Paul in the public forum. They mocked him. And it wasn't about how he looked. And it wasn't about his dialect. It was about what he said. And it's certain to have made him sad, as would the second reaction. But I guess it's a little bit better. Some waited. They waited. They said, we'll hear you again on this. In other words, they were saying, we're going to take our time and really process and work through wondering about whether or not 30,000 gods, philosophy, and technology are going to be good enough for us. And really what waiting, I think, ends up being is a cop-out, because most of the people who wait don't truly search. They just wait. And if you are waiting, I would encourage you to get with someone who can help you discern and figure out how to sort through your options. But praise God, some people believed. Paul names a couple. There were others. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, the heartbeat of this church, our staff's prayer for you, our church's prayer for you, is that you would believe in Jesus Christ. That you would recognize what these few did in Acts and see that God is great good and glorious, and so much more worthwhile than any other option you could consider in this world. He'll change your life now. And he'll change your life for eternity. Will you receive him today? I want to invite everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And If you're a Christian today, you're in your ministry context, you are a disciple following Jesus Christ, and there's something in your heart when we talk about that, and you're saying, I really wish I, fill in the blank. I wish I led my family spiritually better. I wish I was a better witness at work or at school. I wish that I guided young people better. I wish that I served at church and was more sacrificial with my time, energy, and effort in kingdom-building ways. Whatever it is, whatever your context is, and whatever and however God might be challenging you, believer, today, right now, whatever that thing or those things are, just tell God, hey, God, I, I, I need your help. I need your strength. I believe this is what you want me to do. Help me. And then if you are not yet a believer, but today you think this is really something I need to get into, this is something I want to believe in, this is a choice I need to make for my life. There's not a complicated set of steps to take for you to become a kingdom citizen, to become part of God's family. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. And you can call on him by praying something like, Dear Jesus, Thank you for loving me. 
Thank you for reaching out to me and being near. Forgive me. Be my Savior and be my Lord. And God, for the Christian people in the room, I just pray your power on our lives. We all struggle, we all trip, we all stumble, and we all feel anything but confident too often. But everybody in the room is being called to do something in their context, and whatever that is, Lord, I pray you'd empower it. I pray that we would submit to it and sacrificially give ourselves up to do what you're leading us to do. We thank you that you are a great God, that you are so good to us that mercy prevails in your revealing yourself to us, that grace prevails. Thank you. And just help us to do and be the things that you call us to. And we can't do it without you. And Lord, for anybody in the room that's like I was for so many years, just confused about who you are, but more how you can be real to me, Lord, I just pray that you would make yourself real. And we thank you for anybody who chose to believe today. And we pray your blessings in their, in their lives in big ways as they grow together to be what it is you've saved them to be. Uh, we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen.